How are we to see the difficulties that we experience during the Godos? Is it some kind of a curse, God forbid, from Hashem? Or could there be more to the story? In order to understand this, we're going to look at the Pasuk that says Hashem gives us Brocha Uklala, blessings and Klala. What exactly does Klala mean? Well, we're going to see that there are two possible ways to translate it in Aramaic. And based on those two opposite or different ways of translating it, we get two different perspectives how a Jewish person potentially should view the difficulties of the current situation, the Golos situation, and it might depend on where you live or how you think. Beginning of our parasha, <coughs> Hashem says, Look, I am giving you today blessings and the opposite. So we say, First we're going to have a look at the translation of Unkelos, who translates Brocha and Klola as Birchon Velutin, literally, blessings and curses. And through the continuation of the conversation, other psukim that follow any time that the word klala is used, he translates it as lutin, curses. That is targum unculus. Now, that's not the only translation we have of the Torah in Aramaic. This is where it gets interesting. When you look at the translation that was done by Rabbi Yonason ben Uziel, Tirgum tevas uklala bebeza psukim, apsukim. In the first two times in this parasha where it uses the word klala, he translates it as v'chilufa, the opposite. So Hashem says, I'm presenting you with brochus or the opposite, or the exchange for brochus. We're going to see a similar translation in the Talmud Yerushalmi. So, we need to understand what's going on over here. What is the reason that there should be two different ways to translate the word klola? Curses or opposites? It's particularly difficult to understand. Because a little bit later, when he spells out, Moshe Rabbeinu to the Jewish people, spells out when and how the Jews are going to get told the details of these brachas, or the opposite, where it says, it says that there will be the klala declared from or facing har evil. Then something interesting happens. Targum Yonason, who originally did not want to use the word lutin, which is curse, now does use the word melatatayo, which is curses. So there seems to be an inconsistency in the Targum Yonasan. And of course, there is this apparent contradiction between the two variations of how to translate it. Now that we're looking at the apparent discrepancy in the Targum Yonasan, here's something else that makes it even more difficult to understand. Let's talk about this conceptually. A brocha is a concept, a concept of blessing. And a curse is a concept, a concept of negativity. Whereas what Targum Yonason says over here, which is chilufa, the opposite, opposite doesn't tell me what it is. So if brocha is the one option, then the other option could be lack of brocha. The opposite, either you are blessed or you don't have blessing. It's not clear that chilufa means curse. 
second of all, chilufo ye omer al beis inyonim ashoinim zemizeh, ashelochein muchlofim zebozeh. Whenever you use the word exchange, and we're going to see an example shortly, an example based on a teaching in the Zohar that should be familiar to many of us. So usually when you use the word chilofa, chilofa doesn't actually mean exact opposite, it actually means an exchange. And usually if you're exchanging things, they seem to have, well, they're two independent things, but they must have some relatable content. You could confuse the one with the other or exchange the one from the other. So, you're on the one hand saying, these things are different to each other. And on the other hand, you're saying, there is the possibility that you could exchange the one for the other. Surely the word chilufa doesn't really apply to two things that are real opposites. You don't exchange a brocha for a klala. You could exchange one kind of pleasure, the benefit of Olam Hazeh for the benefit of Olam Haba. So instead of enjoying myself now, I enjoy myself later. That you could exchange. That would fit with the word Chilufa. But Brocha and Klala are very dramatically opposite to each other. How does the word Chilufa work in this context? So here's the example, just to illustrate how Chilufa works. One of the classic places where we find the concept of Chiluf is when it comes to letters. There's certain letters that either because of their pronunciation or because of the way that they operate, which part of the mouth you use in order to pronounce them, they can be exchanged for others. Here's the example. You can use the methodology of switching letters only if there's something in common between the letters. Like the Zoyar says, So we have, Echad, obviously, proclaiming the oneness of Hashem. And then we say, Baruch Hashem, Va'ed. So both sentences end with a word that could exchange for the other. Echad could exchange with Va'ed. You can switch the letters. How could you switch the letters? Nobody's going to tell you that an Aleph and a Vav are opposites. The reason you can exchange them is because they have certain similarities. What are the similarities? Havav, devoid, mischalefesimo, Aleph, de'echad, b'yosin, shteyen, m'yosies, e'hevi. Well, the reason we can exchange the Aleph of Echad with the Vav of Vo'ed is because they belong, to, they belong to a category of letters, the Aleph, Hei, Vav, Yud letters. What do they have in common? Firstly, they're Oisisa Hemshech. They are letters that can carry the sound of the previous letter. So if you have Aleph, let's say, at the end of the word, Na, so you're actually hearing the Nun sound carried into the Aleph, or Nu, same principle. Oisis Hanoyach, they are letters that kind of you, they, they are soft, they don't have a strong sound of their own. And Oisius Hanashima, they're pronounced using breath. So Aleph and Vav can switch. What do you see? That Chilufa means there are two things that exchange each other, Dafka, because of their similarity. Likewise, we can switch the Ches of Echad with the Ayin of Vo'ed. Why? Because they're guttural letters. And of course, the most uh, simple of the two to switch is the enlarged Dalad of the word Echad with the regular Dalad of the word Va'ed because ultimately they're both a letter Dalad. How then could Targum Yonason suggest that a real meaningful translation of the word Klala is exchange? Exchange and an exchange for a Brocha really does not seem to make any sense. 
So said, the first thing we're going to have to pay attention to is who is dishing it out? Who's giving the brochus over here? Who's possibly giving the klolos over here? Habibah's explanation is, In order to understand that, let's first look at the operating system of each of these two translations. Targum Unculus is primarily interested in telling us what the words mean. Occasionally he'll throw in a little bit of insight. Targum Yonason is primarily using the translation as a means to give us insight and commentary on the psukim. So, the primary objective of Unculus is to translate Pshat. Occasionally he'll give us contextual insight, but always linked to the Pshat of the Psukim. Unculus wants us to understand simply what the Pasuk is saying. Whereas Targum Yonason, and by the same token, the Yerushalmi, very often link the translation to a Midrashic insight, to an Halacha, as the case may be. So, Uncle says Pshat. What is Klala in Pshat? A curse. So, how do you say that in Aramaic? Lutin. That's it. But that's when you're looking at things from a pshat perspective. Once you start thinking in a midrashic way, you say, whoa, hang on a second, the word curse doesn't seem to fit over here. The Pasuk says this is what Hashem is dishing out, what Hashem is giving us. We know that there's a principle, whoever gives does so with goodness and with generosity, especially when you're talking about Hashem. So hang on a second. Unkelos, you're saying that Hashem, who is gives generously curses? Don't we have key principles that negative things don't flow from Hashem? That's the objection that Targum Yonasan and the Yerushalmi have to the Targum Onkelis. Yes, we get it. You deal with Pshat. So you say it simply. Klala is Klala. It's curses. We have a philosophical question about that. Are you suggesting that curses are dished out directly by Hashem? Therefore, the Targum Yonasan would prefer to say that Klala just means the exchange. You could have had a Brocha and instead you have exchanged it for something negative. So what's shifting in the Targum Yonasan? Let's not blame Hashem over here and say Hashem wanted to dish out curses. Let's say Hashem offered a curse and the recipient chose to exchange, sorry, offered a brocha. Hashem offered a brocha and the recipient chose, because of their choices, behaviors, whatever, to exchange it for something less palatable. Because the recipient was not suited to receive brachas because of choices and behavior. Therefore, that caused the bracha that Hashem had sent towards this person to become transformed into something negative. Not because that Hashem, God forbid, sends a curse. Hashem sent a bracha. We pollute our environment, and therefore the brocha gets contaminated on the way in. 
Through the deeds of the recipient. In the same way, logically, as our actions bring us in line for the brochus, so it's possible that our actions, God forbid, should bring us in line for the opposite. Therefore, okay, so what do we see over here? So we see clearly that there's a philosophical distinction in how Targum Unklus and Targum Yonison explain it. Targum Unklus says, we've got to give you the Pshat. The Pshat is that Klala means a curse. Targum Yonison comes along and says, yes, but what about the question of, does Hashem dish out curses, to say that? Therefore, let's rather call it Chilufa, which means Hashem dispatched a brocha, and the person, because of their behavior, contaminated that brocha. Whereas when you get later in the story, and now we're standing at the banks of the Yarden River inside Eretz Yisrael at Har, uh, um, Har Grizim and Har Evil, and now you've got to call out the Levim and Kohanim, have to call out the Brochus and the Klolis. So, there it's talking about how you, the people, are going to share the information about the brachas and otherwise on uh, the curses on Har Evil. They were not saying what Hashem is giving. Therefore, at that point, the Targum Yodison is also happy to translate the word Klola as curses because we're not saying Hashem dishes out curses. Instead, what we're saying is that the people are describing curses. There the word curse works. So as far as Targum Yonason is concerned, the one thing we want to avoid at all costs is the suggestion that Hashem wants Chas to curse. The only thing is that's going to raise the question the other way. So are you suggesting that certain things are outside of Hashem's control? It's still not absolutely clear. So, Targum Yonason, are you suggesting that the bad things that occur in our lives are 100% our doing? When you read the Pasuk, the Pasuk says, I am giving you two choices, Brocha and Klala. When you read the Pasuk, it sounds like I, Hashem, am giving you Brocha and Klola. And that links two things. That is a conjunctive phrase. It links the Brocha and the Klola. Both are, so to speak, in my hands. So it's very nice that the Targum Yonason feels we need to address the philosophical elephant in the room. But what about the fact that it doesn't really seem to match the simple translation of the Pasuk? So we don't yet have clarity on how exactly Targum Yonason understands this. So in order to answer that question, we have to ask ourselves, why do we have an Aramaic translation of Torah in the first place? And if we needed it, because maybe there were people who were not good at Hebrew and that was the spoken language at the time, why do we have two very different kinds of translation of the Torah into Aramaic? And we'll quickly identify that they are also based on two different geographical locations. And that's really important because the spiritual reality of being in Israel is very different to the spiritual reality outside of Israel. And that's going to influence how you translate or interpret Torah depending on where you are. So why do we have a translation in Aramaic? The whole concept of translating Torah in this case into Aramaic, but it could apply to other languages also. Why do we do it? We do it for the benefit of the people. Why do they need it? 
בו מצד גולוס ומשיבודם של ישראל, אשר מחמס מצב זה נישא בהצורך לתרגמס התוילה ללשיינס דהיינומס עם עם ולשיינוי. The reason we require translations is because Jews are in גולוס. If we were all in Eretz Yisrael, in a state of גאולה, as we should be, who would need Aramaic or English? We'd learn everything in Lashon HaKodesh, in the original, and it'd be great. So the whole motivation for translation is because people are in Golos. So we've got to service the people. Ha, how do we service the people? Depends where you're coming from. So one thing's for sure that the reason, the motivation behind having to translate is because Golos is difficult. And so we've got to speak to the people who are going through a difficult time and make the Torah accessible to them. But now, how do you view the difficulties of Golos? Two possible ways. The first way we'll explore is the attitude and the translation, how Torah translates into the Golos world from Unclus's perspective. He's living in real Golos, in Bavel, Mekoima Golos, the place of Golos, where the darkness is palpable. In that reality, if you're actually experiencing the Golos firsthand, it feels like a curse. So it's a relatable concept. Curses. But when you look from the perspective of Rabbi Yonason ben Uziel living in Eretz Yisrael, or the, Talgum, or the Talmud Yerushalmi, which is written in Eretz Yisrael, that's a different spiritual reality. That's a reality where the thickness of the dark Golos is a little lighter. There you have the luxury of seeing more of the purpose, the depth, the inner reality rather than the experienced reality. That's why, as we already mentioned, their translation is not just translating words, but it's giving insight. Because we're looking for something deeper. So we'll quote a medrash or whatever it is, because we're looking for something deeper. That's why the attitude of Rabbi Yonason ben Uziel, the Targum Yonason, and of the Yerushalmi is these things that appear so bad, painful, difficult, there's something deeper happening over here. They are an exchange, meaning, we already said before that when you say the word chilufa, there has to be a common theme between the, the two things that you plan to exchange. So there has to be a common theme between bracha and curses when you're looking deeply enough. In other words, when you have this deeper perspective, then you're able to identify, look, The way it plays out is very different in a brocha, where you can see the goodness openly, and the way it plays out in a klala, where it's a really painful experience to go through. But what they both share is, both of them intend for our good. The good times, obviously you can see that Hashem intends for our good, and the difficult times, you have to understand that Hashem intends for our good. But they're both the same in theme. As the Pasuk says, that Hashem caused you to have distress 
and he caused you to be hungry. That Hashem punishes us, so to speak, or gives us difficulty or challenges like a parent does to a child. Why? To get us, to encourage us, to keep Torah mitzvahs, so we can get to Geula, we can get into Eretz Yisrael. In our context, why do we have our challenges and difficulties to prepare us to be in the right position that we can experience and enjoy the great revelations that will happen at the time of Geula? So if I'm looking from this previous deeper perspective, I see in every curse, not just a silver lining, but a deep intention for growth, for for raising, for spirituality, for connection. Now, you're only going to see this message, not in the original Lashon HaKodesh, the original text of the Torah. This message will only start to come out once you begin to translate, meaning to explain. Because that's what translation is for, right? To take things we would not have understood and use the translation to help us understand them. That's translation. Make it accessible. Clarify. So you'd think, look, all this lofty stuff that you're talking about, that golos is really a preparation for Gula and it helps to elevate us, you would think that information is reserved for the creme de la creme, the big scholars, the pious individuals. They live in that world. They're not part of the golos anyway, so they could afford the luxury of seeing the silver lining. No, we translate it. Because we want to convey that perspective to ordinary people. These are people who are so stuck in Golos and so impacted by the Golos that they need a translation. They actually don't know how to learn it in the original. That's the whole point over here. We will share with those very ordinary, simple people this insight. The golos is for good. It's to strengthen us, to raise us, to transform us, to connect us. That's what Targum Yonasan and the Yerushalmi would like to convey. Now, all of this is put forward right at the beginning of the parasha, which in a sense is the summary of the whole parasha. At that point, we're talking in general terms. What are overall purpose of doing Torah mitzvahs is. At that point we say, what is the purpose of all Torah mitzvahs? Brocha and klola. Meaning to say, Torah mitzvahs is to take you through the open goodness and to take you through the difficult times to find the value and the goodness in those difficult times too. But once we start to, that's the general headline of what Judaism is all about, Torah Mitzvahs, to improve the person, connect us to Hashem. Once I start getting down into the details, 
Now you're getting into Eretz Yisrael. This is the place you have to inherit and start doing all of the mitzvahs because many of them did not apply outside of Israel. Now we've got to speak the language of the Yetzirah. We've got to speak the language of the Nefesh Bahamis because we're now outside of the miraculous cocoon of the Midbar and we're in the materialistic world with a whole list of what we're supposed to be doing. But we also have many, many potential distractions. So we have to speak to the Yetzirah, speak to the Nefesh Bahamis in such a way that they'll stay on task. And then you've got to speak clear language. At that point, we say milat tayo. Watch out. If you step out of line, Mr. Nefesh Abamis, milat tayo. There's going to be tzoros. Shekein rak beifen zenit nechvoyesh asa yetzahora kamay mirazal lehoilom yargiz odom al yetzahora. Because that's the language you have to speak to the Yetzirah, as Gemara famously says, you should always agitate your Nefesh Elikis, or as in the language of the Gemara, your Yetzatoiv, to berate and disparage your Yetzahara. We need intimidation to get the Yetzahara to behave. What's the intimidation? Watch out. There's going to be God forbid Saras. Okay, so what have we got so far? Brocha obviously is what Hashem wants to do. Hashem wants to give us brocha. Klola is that inside the, so to speak, more difficult experiences that we may have in our lives, within that, there is the opportunity that we could work and as we work, we could raise ourselves to be uh, fitting to receive the great Giloi of Geula. Now we're going to take it a notch deeper than that. It's not just about our work. Fundamentally, within difficulty, fundamentally lies Brocha. This is another perspective altogether. The fact that the Torah calls the so-called Klala an exchange for the Brochas. It's not just to maybe ease things for us. Okay, keep going, keep working because it's really for your benefit. It's a fundamental principle and concept in Judaism. What does that mean? So, in order to understand this, let's focus as Hasidus does on the language over here. Hashem doesn't just say, watch out, there are brochas and curses. He says, Look where they're coming from, from Anoichi. I'm looking at this from a deeper perspective. First of all, it's not, and yes, of course, Moshe is the one talking, but he's speaking in Hashem's voice. So when he says, I am giving you today brochas and curses, it's not just Moshe saying, okay, here's the list, ladies and gentlemen, these are the things that may bless you, these are the things that may... He's saying, I'm paraphrasing that Hashem says, I will give you brochas and curses. Now, out of all the ways that we could refer to Hashem, the word Anoichi represents Hashem beyond description, beyond name, beyond title, beyond any hint. This is the real essence of Hashem's oneness. How can you possibly suggest that from Hashem's pristine essence, there could be a possibility for something that even externally is not healthy, not nice, not comfortable, not brocha? How's it possible? Isn't Hashem the source of only good? 
So in order to understand that, you have to understand that actually that's exactly the point. This whole concept of dividing things into brocha and not so comfortable, good things, not so good things, is when you live in a world of division, when you live in a world that is diverse. But when you live in a world that is homogenous, that is connected, that is united, when you live in Hashem's reality, things don't work the same way. Because one of the incredible things when you're living at the world of real simplicity, pshitus, it doesn't mean simplicity as in it's unsophisticated, but pshitus means where everything is on a singular theme, everything is united. That's the simplest reality you could have, right? Like they always say, a person who tells a lie, it's very complicated. You have to remember all the different details. If you tell the truth, it's simple because everything just flows, all comes together, it's homogenous. So when you're dealing with Hashem's achdus, Hashem's oneness, it's no chap to notice the oneness where everything looks the same. The chap is to detect it where things appear, in other words, and now as ironic as this sounds, dafka, when an essence can express itself in different or even opposing ways, that's when you know it's true, pshitos. Which means that all the distinction is not a barrier. So let's just put this into simple terms. A parent loves a child, yes? That is, we could call a simple love. It's not because, right? Maybe you love a person because you like the way they talk, the way they act, the way they treat you, the fact that they're popular, the fact they have a lot of money. I don't know, a whole lot of reasons. When a person loves a child, why do you love a child? It's a simple love. It's my child. That's it. I don't need to explain anything in it. Further than that. So now, the parent who loves the child buys the child a gift. Is that an expression of the parent's love? Absolutely. The parent who loves the child disciplines the child, possibly even with a punishment. Is that an expression of love? Yes, absolutely. But there are contradictions. How is that possible? Giving a gift is a show of kindness. Giving punishment is a show of discipline. And discipline and kindness are two opposite realities. Yes, but because the love I have is not a love defined by some specific kind of title or set of parameters because my love is absolute therefore it could play out in different ways even in contradictory ways and it's still a hundred percent love that's how it is when we talk about the the absolute reality of Hashem's unity it doesn't have to conform to any particular set of rules and it can play out even in apparently contradictory ways where do you really see that it's absolute oneness of Hashem when it expresses itself in what would appear to be opposite to what you'd expect? How do you know that the parent really loves the child? Not when you give the child a gift. Anybody can give your child a gift. How do you know you really love your child when you care enough to discipline your child too? Which implies that the degree to which we are able to bring Hashem's essence into the world through chilufa, those things that exchange for the brocha, that are not comfortable like the brocha, that feel as if Hashem is being rough on us, is a deeper experience of revealing Hashem's essence than when He just does good for us. 
it's similar, if you remember the Sikha that we learned, about does Moshe Rabbeinu love the Yidin? Right? The challenge of Rabbi Yochanan to the Tzeduki. Does Moshe love the Jews? You, the Tzeduki, think that love means that he's only got to be soft and nice and welcoming. Actually, love means that he's willing to push you to do things that are uncomfortable or to put you through experiences that you don't welcome because he knows it's actually good for you. This dovetails perfectly with what the Alter says in different in a different style in Tanya. Where he explains that any difficulty, challenge, or what we consider to be punishment in our lives that comes from Hashem comes from Alma Discasia, meaning we can't see the goodness. The name Yud K, which is higher than Vav K, higher than that which can be revealed. Because the ultimate kindness and the ultimate love actually is so intense that you can't necessarily see that it's love and kindness. The parent takes the child to the dentist because the parent loves the child, but the child screams at the dentist. Why don't you love me? This is also the deeper insight into the Pasuk that says, the one who Hashem loves, that's who he will rebuke. What's it telling us? The highest level of love that could be expressed by Hashem to us will express itself in a way of what appears to be rebuke. Where the overt kindness disappears, and all we have to believe is that this covert kindness. Because the reality is that kindness we can detect and experience is fundamentally limited kindness. This gives us a far deeper impression, understanding of why when we talk about the things that we experience as curses, we call them an exchange. Why an exchange? You can only exchange things that have something in common, right? Because in truth, all of these things that we humans call curses are actually the deepest brochas, like the famous story with Alter Rebbe and the Mitter the Rebbe, hearing curses or not hearing curses in Parashas Kisovay. It's just an exchange. We've exchanged. Instead of this kind of manifestation, which you could appreciate, it's this kind of manifestation which you've got to wrap your head around. And the reason that the packaging is so abrasive is because we're actually dealing with something which is completely beyond what a human being could understand or appreciate. Now, it's, it's great in concept, but we still want We still want all these lofty levels that are beyond us to actually be accessible and experienced by us. So how do you get there? The way we do it is by acknowledging. Once we acknowledge that this experience that I'm suffering through actually comes from Hashem, that actually brings me simcha. 
Now I know where it's coming from. Now I know it's not out to get me. Now I know it's not here to hurt me. Now I understand that it's Hashem wanting me to grow or develop some kind of resilience that I never had before, some kind of spirituality I never accessed before. When you recognize that, so that helps to open the channel for Hashem to actually reveal the, 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 the goodness. So what's the message of this parasha? Hashem only wants to shower us with good. Some good is calibrated for our understanding. Greater good, we have to work to reach the point that we will understand. This is the message of the parasha, and the parasha must always somehow relate to the Aftara. We'll see that it's a similar message. We'll link it not only to the specific Haftarah Parshas Re'ei, but also to the theme of the Shiva Denechem, to the seven um, Haftarahs that are supposed to bring us comfort after Tisha B'Av. The theme of these seven Haftarahs is how Hashem will personally comfort us after the tragedies we've been through. And how? Like we'll see in next week's Haftarah, that Hashem says, I personally, and then he reiterates it again, I personally, my essence will be the source of your comfort. Implying that this is a revelation even greater than what happened at, at, at <coughs> Matan Torah, where Hashem only said, Anoichi once. And that's why you'll find the theme, and this is actually a paraphrase, that there'll be rav toiv, much good for the Yidden. Not just ordinary toiv, but much good. What's the reason to be so much good and anoichi anoichi? Because during these seven weeks, Hashem unveils and reveals to us what was previously hidden chesed. What precedes the seven weeks of comfort? Three weeks of misfortune. Now misfortune is klola, right? Which the Targum Yonison says is really chilufa. It's tremendous broch. You just can't see it yet. Well, now we can. From Shabbos Nachamu, we start to actually see what was packaged in those three weeks of misfortune. Because they were from such a high level, as we've explained, the chesed was there, we just couldn't see it. As far as we could see, all we detected was misfortune, difficulty. So what's happening now in the Shiva Dinechemta? Now we're starting to pull open the curtain and see what we had been given in those preceding three weeks. And suddenly we see it's, it's actually bracha. And it's actually comfort. And we're going to see that there's a process how the Nechama unfolded, which is highlighted in this week's parasha, and this week's Haftarah, where the Navi says the Yidden are like a poor person in a tempest that cannot be, uh, that cannot be comforted. How does it work? 
Avodram brings from the Medrash that there's a reason why the, the Haftaris follow in a particular order. Parashas voice Hanan, the Avtera is the Navi Yeshaya saying that Hashem told us we, the Navim, should come and comfort you, the Yidden. The response from the Yidden is, oh, so the Ebersh has abandoned us. He's sending his, his messengers, but he's not perf- personally getting involved. They say this kind of comfort, which is outsourced to the Navim, is like the Ebersh has turned his back on us. Which means that they are clearly saying, we, as a Jewish nation, we're saying, we don't want second-hand smoke. We want direct nechama from you, Hashem. To which Debsha responds in the fourth after Pasha Shoftim, I'll do it, I will. Me, personally, the essence of my being will come and comfort you. Which means that he accepts our arguments. Which then leads to the next two parishes, the next Tafteris, where you actually see Hashem offering comfort to the Jewish people. Until eventually get to the seventh after where the Yidden say, now we can celebrate our connection to Hashem. After the Yidden say, we see Hashem personally coming to comfort us, we celebrate Hashem. Now, for the Chere move on. Something doesn't add up over here. There's a whole process. Send the Nevi'im. They didn't complain. Hashem says, okay, fine. I heard your complaint. Then he gives us Nechama and then we celebrate. Didn't Hashem know this is what was going to happen? Hashem knows everything, including whatever will happen in the future. In you right from the beginning that the Yidden are going to reject the proposed Nechama from the Nevim and that he ultimately is going to have to comfort them. So why the whole story? Why does he wait? Why does Epshter wait until we come banging the door down saying, where are you, God? Have you abandoned us? Now move on. Well, that question is resolved based on what we've explained about the concept of brocha and the concept of chilufa, that that which appears to be a curse actually is a deeper kind of blessing. It's just really disguised. Because we're now in the period that follows the worst descent, the worst lull, the, the, the deepest trough of Jewish history, Tisha B'Av. You know, because if you've been through something really difficult and somebody offers you a lifeline, you're going to take it. So thank you very much. The Nevi'im come along, they say, we're going to comfort, not only comfort, but nachamu, nachamu, double comfort. The people are so harassed. They're so depleted. They should say thank you. And they should, they should be happy with that. If that would be the case, that would actually then have been the people saying Tisha B'Av was a punishment. 
thank God it's over. Thank God now you're giving me nechama because I went through something. And they would not have acknowledged that, hey, the whole Tisha of experience was directly from Hashem. It was chilufa, meaning a bracha, exchanged to a higher degree of bracha. It's actually for my good. They're ignoring that. They're just saying, phew, it's over. Please, say sorry. But because we see that after the Nevi'im come along to try and placate them with comfort, the Yidin reject and say, Hashem has forgotten and abandoned me. I know. Not only are they saying, the Nevi'im are not strong enough as a comfort. They're not just saying that. We want more. They're saying it's like Hashem has abandoned us. Not he didn't give us as much as he could have. It's like he's abandoned. He's turned his back. That is evidence to the fact that the Yidin understand that the purpose of suffering is not just to recover on the other end and say, thank God that's behind us, but it's chilufa. It's to be able to take us to a higher level. They understand and acknowledge that whatever drama we had experienced is hidden kindness. That's why when they hear the Nevi'im offering them comfort, they complain and say, That's not why we went through all of that Golos. Just to get you come along and say, Hashem means well and sends you his best regards and he wants to, he wants to comfort you. They say, hello, we've just been through such hectic stuff that is all evidence to the fact that there must be very deep, powerful brocha and goodness and kindness over here. And that kind of goodness and kindness, I'm sorry, Nevi'im, you don't have the power to give it to us. To reveal that deep, incredible chesed that only Hashem himself can do. So, if it's you, the Nevi'im, here, then Abish has abandoned us. He hasn't given us what the entire purpose of this journey was all about. Just the fact, and this is really the take-home lesson for us, just the fact that they acknowledge there's got to be more, there's got to be deeper, there has to be a purpose, there has to be greatness from this, that awakens the response from Hashem. Hashem says, you're right. That's what I wanted to hear. I wanted to know that you know. I wanted to know that you appreciate that there's no such thing as punishment. That it's just to prepare you for something deeper. Now I can give it to you. David says, you're absolutely right. Whatever comfort the Navi might be able to offer you is actually superficial comfort. And therefore the Ebishter says, I personally will give you what you're supposed to get out of this experience, the real Nechama. And the real Nechama is the ultimate Geula. At which point we'll see Hashem's kindness totally, clearly revealed in every single way. Take care, Omiyad Mamash.